0: So the folks down there, right now I'm too pooped out to preach, man. That last song just did me in. Oh, all right. I, songs like that, I feel sorry for the folks that are sitting in the middle, man. You got to get on the edge and get out to, to, to really get into that song. Super groovy. My name's Greg Boyd, uh, and I'm sweating because I'm hot. I, 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 I'm hot in that way. I'm not saying I'm hot. I'm saying I'm, I'm, I'm warm. Oh, I am hot. Let's you know, face it. Okay. Who are we kidding here? Who are we kidding All right, all right, this is delirium is setting in. Um, so I just want to say, as I'm beginning to get into this, this message, how many of you know that the kingdom is a revolution? Do you know that? How many of you know the kingdom is a revolution? All right, so a good percentage of you do. The rest of you will learn it by the end of this message. But whether you know that or not, the question is how far and how deep are you willing to take that? And so get ready for this. I'm titling this message, Defying, Defying Tanks. And I, I, I want to start by watching a video clip, which all of you who are over 20 years old or 25 years old will remember uh, this event. Let's watch it. And then the moment came which has intrigued you and fascinated and moved the world. You stand there, you're looking down, this tank's coming out. It's got its uh, gun up. And this man just went out and he said, Stop. It's absolutely extraordinary during this time I'm thinking this guy is going to be killed any moment now you could look at him as unusually brave the tank did not try to just run him over it turned to go around him and then the young man jumps in front of the tank and then the tank turns the other way and the young man jumps the other side they did this a couple of times and then the tank turned off its motor And then it seemed to me that all the tanks turned off their motors because uh, it was really quiet. He climbed on top of the tank, banged on the lid, said, get out of my city. You're not wanted here. We don't know exactly what he said, but it's clear that's what he wanted to say. young man did was, in effect, change the world. He became an inspiration to millions, and he changed lives forever. My apologies to those who are podcasting who couldn't see that video. It was a video clip of the tank, who's, he's referred to as the tank man, standing down a long line of tanks in Tiananmen Square, right where the Olympics are taking place right now. And uh, a number of people had just been massacred by the Chinese government for their protests. And they were declaring martial law and therefore were marching into Beijing. And this extraordinary fellow said no. And was willing to lay down his life to stand up to the tanks. And I want to submit to you that that is, in a metaphorical way, what we're all called to do. Not literal tanks, but there are tanks, big tanks, strong tanks that we are called to stand up to and to say, not here, not now, not on my watch. We still don't know the name of that man. Uh, some su- suggest that he's, he was executed shortly after this. Others say that he's still alive. We don't know. But he illustrates something profound and beautiful and something that is very kingdom that we're to emulate. So reading... Out of the book of Luke, and this is the third time we've looked at these passages. We're never in a hurry around here. And I want to bring on this kingdom principle from these passages. It's Luke chapter 13, and I'm just going to read verses 10 through 14. And Lord, use this passage and use this message to wake us up to stir the roaring lion that is inside of us, who is the Holy Spirit, and give us courage to defy tanks and wisdom to see all the tanks that are around us to make us a people who put on display to the world an alternative kingdom, an alternative empire, an alternative way of living. Open our minds and hearts, those in the auditorium, those listening through podcasting or television or any other way. Open our minds and hearts and set the lion a-roaring here this morning in Jesus' name. On the Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward. No, he called her forward to the front and said, said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. And then he put his hands on her, and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant, wrathful, raging. Because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leaders said to the people, There are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days not on the Sabbath. The question I I want to ask this morning is just this. Why did Jesus call that woman forward? I imagine he could have healed her from where she was, probably in the back. He could have spoken the word and she would have been healed. But he calls her forward. Why? It's always important to interpret scripture in its original context There's many things we miss if we fail to do that, and this is one of them. There's a reason why she was called to step forward. What we need to know is that stepping forward would not have been easy for this woman, for a number of reasons in the first century. Uh, For one thing, she was a woman. This was an incredibly patriarchal, sexist culture. Women were to know their place, and their place wasn't at the front of the synagogue. Women were uh, never supposed to talk to a man unless that man was either their father, their husband, or a sibling. Uh, They were to know their place. There's some evidence that women were, at least in most regions, supposed to sit in the back of this synagogue when the teaching was going on, and some evidence that they weren't supposed to be in the room at all, because the assumption was that teaching out of the Torah is just for men, not women. And so we can imagine this Pharisee, as she's stepping out, looking at her with eyes. We later find out that he was indignant, he was, he was, he was angered, with those angry eyes looking at her and saying, woman, don't you dare do this, you stay in your place where you belong, in the back, not in front. For this woman to step out, she had to defy the, the tanks of sexism in her culture. She wanted to come forward and be part of the kingdom to the point where Jesus would touch her and heal her and speak these words into her life. She had to defy the herd mindset, stop going along with the crowd, be a nonconformist, step out and come forward. Another thing is that this lady was disabled and there was a strong prejudice against people with disabilities in the first century, especially in Jewish culture. Many folks regarded those folks as being cursed. They were at the bottom of the social strata. These were the beggars. And there's something of an embarrassment. And so they're supposed to know their place. And yet Jesus is calling this woman with her incredibly bent over back, calling her to come forward and speak to this man. As a woman, she's supposed to speak to this man who is not her husband, who is not her father or her sibling. That's breaking one rule. And now to be in front of the, the, the synagogue, breaking another rule. And you can just imagine this Pharisee staring at her with those eyes of anger saying, Woman! Crippled woman, know your place. You get back where you belong. Your place is not in front. And then, of course, this would have been difficult because this was the Sabbath. And that's the main point that Luke wants to bring out of this passage. Jesus was breaking a strong rule about the Sabbath and calling this woman forward to heal her. And stepping out and coming forward, you can just imagine the eyes of the Pharisees staring at her communicating lady you, you you better think about what you're doing because he's a rule breaker he's an anarchist he's going against our religious tradition and if you agree to this you are too you're you're complicit in his crime to come forward she had to defy the strong tanks of religious tradition and religious authority in the culture of the time she had to revolt she had to be a nonconformist and get inside of her head. There was a price to pay about this. I mean, Jesus is going to go on and be in some other town later on this afternoon. That's what he's doing at this stage of his ministry. He's an itinerant preacher. But this lady's got to stay in her community. And the community looks up to these religious leaders. So to tick off the religious leaders and have them be mad at you is not going to likely pan out very well for you. These are the folks you have to live with. She could have been socially ostracized, because of the rule-breaking she was being a part of on this one Sabbath. It took tremendous faith and tremendous courage for this woman to step out, to come forward, to defy the tank of sexism and the tank of uh, prejudice against people with disabilities and the tank of, of religious authority in order to be touched by Jesus and have the life of God and the healing of God coming into her life. And I want to suggest to you this morning that that in its own way really represents something profound, something foundational about the kingdom. And that is this. It is a revolution, which means, by definition, it revolts. The passage illustrates that if you want to put yourself in the position where the life of God will be pouring into you, and the healing of God will be pouring into you, if you want to put yourself in the position where God reigns in your life, in other words, if you want to put yourself in the position where you're a kingdom person, you've got to be willing to step out. You've got to be willing to stare down strong tanks that represent the norms and the values and the practices of the empire. You've got to be willing to be a nonconformist. It has always been that way. Always been that way. The Bible, it's one of the most fundamental principles of the Bible. You want to follow God? You've got to buck the world. That's just the, the equation. That's why, from the very beginning, the people who follow God have been nonconformists. They've been revolutionaries. Read Hebrews chapter 11. All of them were called to, in different ways, step out of the herd. All of them were called to defy tanks that represent the norms and the values and the practices of the empire. All of them were called to walk by faith, not necessarily knowing what's going to happen to them, Uh, trusting their futures with God. That's what it means to be a kingdom person. Abraham being called out of Ur. Moses being called to go face the mighty tanks of Egypt. The Israelites being called out of Egypt, but that means they've got to be trusting God for their walk in the wilderness, and there's all these other empires around them, and they're defenseless. They don't have a military to trust. They're like little fawns walking through a den of lions. But that's what it means to follow God. And when God plants them in the promised land over and over and over again, he stresses this point. Don't be like the other nations. Separate yourself. Be a nonconformist. I don't want you looking like the other nations, thinking like the other nations, engaging in the practices of of the other nations. He's called them out to be a separate and a holy people. A holy people means to be separate, set apart, and consecrated. One of the main ways that Israel wasn't supposed to be like the other nations is that all the other nations had their idols, their nice tangible gods that they could trust, because it's always easier to trust a tangible God than the invisible God. And so they had all these idols and God was always telling them, I don't want you chasing after idols and trying to worship idols or get life from idols. I want you to be trusting in me. One of the main idols were called the Asherah poles. Asherah poles. They were fertility symbols in the ancient world. And fertility was, was one of the main concerns of ancient people, to be able to propagate your tribe. And so uh, they had these, these Asher poles erected all over the place in honor of the gods who would bless them with their fertility. And the Israelites were always tempted to set up Asherah poles, or at least to leave the ones in place that were there when they got into the land. But God continually is saying, Tear down the Asherah poles. Tear those down. Don't be trusting Asherah poles. Don't be trusting idols. You be trusting me. And other nations trust in their military, but you're to be trusting in me. And other nations trust in their kings and princesses, but you're to be trusting in me. And other nations engage in all sorts of immorality, but you're to be trusting in me and walking in my ways. He called the Israelites to step out of conformity with the empires of the world, to defy the tanks of the culture, to tear down the Asherah poles. And when we get to the New Testament, some of the particulars of the law, which were all about keeping Israel separate from the other nations, circumstances of chains and Gentiles are being brought into the kingdom. And so those particular ways of being different don't apply in the New Testament. But the theme to come out, the theme to defy the tanks, the theme to tear down the Asherah the theme of being a separate, distinct people is found everywhere. If anything, the New Testament intensifies... The call to be a different kind of people. Our life is supposed to be patterned on Jesus Christ in all things. We're to imitate him. And Jesus was anything but a conformist. Every aspect of his life, his teachings, his ministry, every aspect revolted against some value, some norm, or some practice in the empire. His life was lived as a revolt, and our life is to be patterned after his. And that's what it means to be a revolutionary, a revolter, one who revolts against every aspect of the empire that is not in conformity with the reign of God, the empire of God, the kingdom of God. The theme is found throughout the New Testament. So if Paul says, for example, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people And therefore, because he's quoting an Old Testament prophecy here, because God is with us and we are the temple of God, therefore, and now he quotes another Old Testament verse, come out from them and be a separate people. Be separate, separate to the Lord, says the Lord God. What agreement is there between the temple and idols? And Jewish people would be thinking about the physical temple. You don't have idols. You don't have astral poles in the temple of God. Of course not. Well, now we know that we are the temple because God is here, as we sang earlier. He's in our midst. He lives within us. We are the temple of God. We, plural, Paul says, we as a community are the temple of God. And so if you wouldn't have idols in the physical temple, we can't possibly have idols in this temple, in the corporate temple. Our lives are to be purged of astral poles, all the things in the culture that people rely on to get life and to find security and to find value, all the things that the people chase after. Uh, There's no agreement between the temple of God and the idols of the culture. We're called to be separate, distinct, because God lives in us and through us. The necessity of nonconformity is probably driven home most strongly in John, in the epistles of John. He says things like this. Lord, open our ears to hear this. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world, love for the Father is not in you. Then later on he says, Everyone born of God overcomes the world. They're not conformed to the world. They overcome the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. The world for John simply represents the world outside of the reign of God, the, outside the kingdom of God. The world represents the ordinary, normal, herd way of living in a fallen, oppressed world. That is the world. What John is saying is that loving God is antithetical to loving the world. Loving God is antithetical to living in the ways of the world. Chasing after the idols of the world. You can't serve two masters, Jesus said. To love the one is to not love the other. Don't love the world or anything in the world. They're absolutely opposite. And to love God means you're overcoming the world. You're not conforming to the world. And the way we overcome it is by not having faith in any of the stuff that the world has faith in, we have faith in God. Our faith overcomes the world. It makes us non-conformist revolutionaries who separate ourselves from the way of the world. And because the theme is all over the place in the New Testament, the early church did this with a passion. They just didn't conform. They were, across the board, regarded as the, the weirdos in the empire. Absolute peculiar people. Everyone else accepted the values and the norms and the practices of the empire. That's just what people do. This is what everyone's doing, so this is what we do. This is our normal. But the Christians come along, and they wouldn't accept that normal. They revolted against that normal. Everyone else, of course, you, you, you bow your head to the emperor. You just light a little incense. It's your way of saying that you honor the emperor, but the early Christians wouldn't do that. Uh, They weren't asked to believe that the emperor was divine or anything. Just pledge your allegiance by lighting some incense to the altar, uh, to, to the emperor. And they wouldn't do that. And that's why they were sometimes fed to lions and sometimes lit on fire. They wouldn't conform to the empire. Other practices of the empire they wouldn't accept. It was the father's authority, for example, to decide within the first two weeks of a baby being born whether he wanted that baby to live or die. That was the authority of the father. If he he decided he didn't want this baby because it was a defect of some sort, uh, they would uh, put the baby up on the uh, mountaintop or the hilltops for the wolves to get or throw them into the river at night uh, for the baby to drown. But the Christians wouldn't go along with that. They said, you can't kill a creation of God And so they would hang out on the hilltops and save those babies and hang out by the water and and save the babies that were thrown in at night. And everyone else looked at them and they accused them of undermining family values. They said, you're undermining the authority of the Father and this spells chaos, anarchy, if you take away the authority of the Father. But the Christians said, we've got to obey God, not the norms and the values of the culture. And so they refused to conform to that. In a culture that strongly valued men over women the christians were noteworthy for the for the respect and the value that they assigned to women they treated them equal and uh, the roman empire like every empire that's ever existed it, it, it was just assumed as part of the culture that if your leader tells you to kill somebody because it's in the interest of the empire to do that well then you just do that that is your duty But the Christians said, we can't kill other human beings who are created by God for whom Jesus died. And so they refused to do that. And everyone looked at them and said, you're being unpatriotic, you're being subversive, you're cowards. And for that reason, they were persecuted and fed to lions and lit on fire. But they considered it an honor to suffer and die the way Jesus did, if that's what it required, to walk in the way of Jesus and revolt against the strong tanks of the empire that wanted to bull their distinctiveness over and get them to conform with the rest of the world. There were revolutionaries, and folks, we are called to be revolutionaries. We're called to revolt. We're called to be radical nonconformists who stand up to the tanks in our culture, all aspects of the culture that don't agree, that aren't in line with... Uh, The reign of God. They don't conform to the reign of God. We're not to conform to them because we do conform to the reign of God. And in revolting, we're to be doing it to put on display a radically different empire, a radically different kingdom, a radically different king that doesn't walk in the ways of the empire, that walks in the way of love and self-sacrifice. And now I'm going to say it rather straight. So... If you have seatbelts in your seat, put them on because this requires some straight talk. I know I normally like to kind of pussyfoot around things, but this morning I'm kind of feeling in a bold mood, so I'm going to say a bold. Hey, look, here's the deal. It's been my observation and many other people's observation, and it's been confirmed by a lot of different studies, that professing Christians in America really are not nonconformists. They're not revolters against the culture. In fact, they are very much conformed to the culture. And for those who are listening or watching who are in different cultures, I want to ask for your indulgence right now because I want to speak specifically about America. You take it and apply it to your culture because it applies to all cultures. But I'm interested right now in America. As a whole, we are conforming to the culture. In fact, we're not even aware that there are tanks that we need to stand up to. In fact, to some degree, Christians are the ones who are driving the tanks and they're calling them Christian tanks. And they don't even notice the Asherah poles because they think that their crosses were conforming to the culture. Christianity was meant to be a revolt against the world, a revolution. But in our culture, we have largely reduced it to a a get-out-of-hell-for-free thing and a bless-me-club sort of thing. That's kind of what Christianity means. You don't have to go to hell, and now you get blessed. And the idea of revolting is almost off of most people's radar screens. Oh, Yeah, if their leaders pick on a certain sin group, let's go after that sin group, and let's go after these laws and these particular things. Yeah, they'll revolt against that. But in terms of a lifestyle... We're very much conforming to the culture. It is why in America, Christianity is rather boring because people just don't know what else there is to do. I got saved, I'm not going to hell, and and I'm in the Bless Me Club, and so I just got to wait around to die. Maybe tell a few people about Jesus, otherwise I'm just going to wait around to die. What are we supposed to be doing here in this interim stage? We're, We're not even aware that there's something we're supposed to be revolting against. And because of that mindset of conformity, it really explains why George Barna... And others who have looked into this have really shown conclusively that in terms of the core values we believe and in terms of the lifestyle we embrace, there's very little difference between professing Christians in America and non-Christians in America. It's almost indistinguishable. Many uh, professing Christians think that the culture actually is pretty Christian. So there's not that much to revolt against. But I submit to you that while there is a thin veneer of a civic religion, a Judeo-Christian heritage that still lingers a little bit in this culture, every, every culture has its civic religion, uh, it just kind of gives people a, the schedule and the holidays to celebrate and things of that sort, we still have that, there's a thin veneer of a Judeo-Christian heritage. But if you look just beneath the surface of that thin veneer, peel it back a little bit, you'll find a culture that is just about as pagan as any culture on the planet is. The values that we embrace and espouse are radically at odds with the kingdom of God. And how desperately we need to wake up. Have God open up our eyes, our spiritual eyes, to see that in fact we live in a pagan world, a pagan culture. How we need God to wake us up and and, and to hear God calling us to step out from the herd. Step out from the mainstream. Stop walking the way of the normal as it's defined in our culture. How we need to hear God uh, calling us to defy strong tanks in our culture and to tear down the Asherah poles and the idols of our culture in order to put on display a radically different, much better, and much more beautiful way of living life that will attract those who are hungry into the kingdom and allow the mustard seed to grow. I want to review a few of the major lines of tanks that we have to stand up to. But in our present state, we often don't notice. And this isn't meant to be an exhaustive list by any means. If I was to give an exhaustive list, we'd be preaching here all week. But here's a sampling of the kind of tanks that we're supposed to stand up to. One major one is the tank of consumerism. We live in a culture that just over and over and over again, every commercial we see 24-7 is telling us to buy, telling us we got to get, telling us we don't have enough motivating us to be chasing after stuff. We live in a culture where our worth and our esteem and our identity is largely measured by what we possess and what we acquire, what we own, what we can display. And So it's created a culture of people who are perpetually chasing after stuff, uh, perpetually wanting more, a culture where people are never really content in contradiction to what the Bible says, where which, 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 which Paul says, be content with whatever you have, our culture says the exact opposite. Never be content. You can always long for a bigger house and a better car and nicer clothes and uh, a bigger slice of the American gene, dream. So chase it. Chase after it. And so we got people who are perpetually working and busy and don't have any extra time because they're trying to earn more money to get more toys and more trinkets. A consumeristic culture. But God is calling his people to see the idolatry of that and to step out against that, not Christianize it by saying, as some versions of American Christianity do, that if you love Jesus, he'll, he'll guarantee that you get more toys. No, no, to stand up against that, to defy the strong tanks of consumerism and tear down the Asherah poles of greed. In a world that is bent over by chasing after stuff, we're to, we're, we're to be a people who know what it is to walk straight, straight up, who know what it is to walk in the ways of God, who know what it is to put on display a radically different kind of kingdom, different way of living, where you find joy in being outrageously and ridiculous ge- ridiculously generous, where, where you, you, you notice people who are hurting the poor and, and you pour into their lives and you share and, and live in community and sharing with one another who aren't chasing after stuff, who don't even consider their stuff their own possessions, because their Lord and Savior has told us not to have any possessions, who have the freedom of clinging to nothing and know the joy that that gives, who, who walk in a way of simplicity being content with what they have rather than chasing after stuff. God calls us to live in a different kingdom, which means we separate ourselves from the tank uh, and stand up against the tank of consumerism that lords over our culture. And then we're called to stand up against the tank of individualism, another major idol in our culture. We have a culture that says in a lot of different ways, it's about me, it's about me, 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 me. I get it my way. I get to choose things my own way. I, you know, The world revolves around me. I have my rights, and I'm going to insist on my rights, and my rights say that I get to, I got to, I want to, me, me, me. And because of that, we have a culture where people really don't, haven't developed a capacity to, on how to be inconvenienced to have deep relationships with others. It's just a hassle. Why should I allow others to impinge on my rights. It's a lot easier just to live life on my own. So we've got a culture of lone rangers who don't want the hassle of community. What we've done is we've created a culture of self-centered, self-centered, narcissistic people who really kind of have a toddler mindset that the world revolves around them. And because of that, we have a culture where people are isolated from one another. Most people don't know their neighbors. Most people don't know most people in the church. Most people don't develop deep relationships with anyone outside of their families. And the relationships with their families aren't always that good. And so we have a culture of people who really, in their heart, are lonely, but they don't know it. They can't, they can't label it because they're indoctrinated by the idol of individualism in our culture. And against that, God calls for a people who step out, who don't go the way of the herd, who defy the tanks of individualism, who are are willing to tear down the astral poles of self-centeredness. In a world that is bent over by self-centeredness, meism, and and individualism, we're to be a people who know what it is to walk straight up. A people who are being healed by the grace of God being poured in our life. A people who learn that life is meant to be lived in community. And that rather than insisting on all of our ways and all of our rights and all of our choices, we're to be a a people who have learned the joy of dying to that. Being freed from self-centeredness and who therefore defer to one another. And esteem other interests above our own. Who learn the joy of living in community that reflects the communal nature of their creator and know the fulfillment of entering into deep relationships where you live life together and you hold each other accountable and you grow in the kingdom together. Culture, we're to be a a tribe of people who, who know that life is meant to be communal and therefore who defy the tanks of individualism in our culture. And then, of course, we're called to defy the tank of eroticism in our culture. We have a culture which, despite its thin veneer of Judeo-Christian values, at its heart has come to embrace the idea that sex is really a form of recreation. As that uh, episode of Friends one time said, sex is a lot like racquetball, you know, It's, it's just something you do with friends. You have a recreational view of, of sex, which is why people just assume that it's, it's just natural to have sex when you want it, how you want it, with, that, with whoever you want it. And you're Victorian if you don't agree with that. You're prudish. You're out of sync with, with things. You're not normal. So we've created a culture where, where uh, we treat our bodies as though they were just sort of toys and just to be used uh, for for the sake of pleasure. We've created a culture. The, 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 the recreational view of sex gets looped in with individualism, gets looped in with consumerism, so now we have a culture where pornography is a $40 billion a year industry, more than professional all the professional sports put together. We have a culture where... Uh, Roughly 50% of spouses will at some point cheat on their spouse in their marriage. We have a culture where 35% of the children are being born out of wedlock. We have a culture where one quarter of all teenagers uh, has a sexually transmitted infection. And we have a culture where people are getting massively screwed up because their minds and their hearts are being fragmented because they're uniting themselves on a spiritual level with all these people that they're having sex with but they don't know it. And so they're being ripped apart. And in this frayed culture governed by eroticism, God calls us to be a different kind of a people, amen? He calls us to step out of the herd thinking when it comes to sex. He calls us to defy the strong tanks of eroticism. He calls us to tear down the asherah poles of of immorality. In a world that is bent over by its its sexuality, we're to be a people who know what it is to walk straight up who really know what it is to celebrate sex, who really know how to enjoy sex because they they, they do it God's way. We're to be a people who put on display the beauty of God's precious design for sexuality between two people who've made a covenant with Him to live life together forever. (laughs) Amen. We're called to be a people who put on display the beauty of God's design for sex, to be the sign of this lifelong covenant, to be a symbol of Christ's own relationship with the church, to be a symbol of the, the, the joy of the triune God, a people who treat sex like a precious diamond. And so it's, supposed to be, it, it, it's, it's supposed to be rare. And they don't treat it like a little stone, a common stone, thrown around however you want, who put on display the beauty of God's radically different way of uh, calling his people to enjoy the gift of sex. And then in our culture, we have got, yes, we still have this strong tank of racism. I know there's a lot of folks who say, well, that can't possibly be true because we've got an African-American running for president. And there are others who right now want to dismiss this as one more piece of Greg Boyd's political correctness, but I assure you, it's not about that at all. If you think we live in a culture that has achieved racial equality, you're living in a dream, and it's not Martin Luther King's dream. Look at the statistics. Study this topic and you'll see something profound going on. Just to give a little snippet. White folks on the whole earn more than non-white folks. White folks on the whole, especially white males, hold the top executive positions in the major corporation. White folks, we white folks, me are three times more likely to own homes and four times more likely to get a college degree and five times less likely to end up in prison than, than African Americans and then in uh, various degrees, other uh, non-white folks. American Indians are three times more likely to suffer substance abuse than whites and four times more likely to commit suicide. And we can go on and on and on and on. And there's a widespread racist view that says, well, look, at it, that's just the choices they make. That's just the choices they make. I had a pastor... Say this to me not too long ago. Hey, look at if people don't want to live in the ghetto, they should just move. They they choose to live there. And, of course, there is individual responsibility. We're not going to minimize that. But when you have statistically significant group behavior, it's time to step back and look at a system. What is going on in the system that maybe helps explain some of this group behavior? Might there be something possibly in the history of the system, the American system, that can help explain some of these discrepancies in group behavior? Is something else going on? And I submit to you that if you look into that, you'll find that there is something else going on. There's a long history of something else going on. White folks conquered America fair and square, and white folks set up the structure for white folks by white folks, and it still is carrying on to a certain degree to this day, a system of white privilege. And that does something to other people groups. And nowhere is that more prevalent than in the church, where we've got 90% of the churches in America that are 90% or more homogenous. And worst of all, they like it that way. And they think it's normal to have it that way, but I submit to you that that is not God's way. God calls us to be a people who step out from that. Step out of that racialized hierarchical system who defy the strong tanks of systemic racism in our culture and are willing to tear down the asherah poles of, of, of racial prejudice and judgment in our culture. In a world that is bent over because it's racialized, we're called to be a people who know what it is to walk straight up. To be healed of that and set free of that. We're called to put on display the one new humanity that Jesus died for. Yes, he died for this. Read Ephesians chapter 2. This is not a little piece of political correctness. Nor is this a little addendum, a nice addition to the gospel. Jesus shed his blood for that. That means it's part of the atonement. That means it's right up there with the forgiveness of sins, folks. This is not a non-negotiable. And we're called to put on display a beautiful kingdom where Babel is being reversed. And the walls that have separated people, the walls of suspicion and hierarchies are being torn down, dismantled. And we're putting on display the beautiful truth that there is one human race, and Jesus died for every member of that human race. And in Christ, there's no no Jew, nor Gentile, no white, nor black, nor, uh, nor, nor any of the other distinctions that the world makes such a big deal out of. We're called to put on display a radically different, much more beautiful way of doing life. We're called to be a people who go out of our way and are willing to be inconvenienced to develop relationships with people who don't look like us and learn about different cultures and learn to appreciate the different ways folks dress and the different food folks eat and the different music people worship to, to be inconvenienced, to get out of our self-centered meism is racially defined and, and to be a bridge builder. Overcoming the gulfs that currently separate people, we've got to stand against the strong tanks of systemic racism in our culture. And the final one I'll mention, and there's a lot of other ones we we could could mention, but time. But there's the tanks of nationalism. And this one, I submit to you, is huge. One piece of evidence of just how huge this is is in mentioning this, some folks just got nervous. In mentioning this, some folks maybe just got a little bit angry. This one is deeply rooted in us. I'm convinced that one of the reasons why so few Uh, Jesus followers get that we're supposed to be revolting against things in the culture revolting against the norms and the values of the culture insofar as they don't agree with the kingdom of God one of the reasons why we don't get that is because we think the culture the nation is already pretty close to God we have such buy-in to the empire that we don't notice the values and the norms of the empire that are radically inconsistent with the norms and the values of God. And so we don't revolt. We've bought into the myth that America is or ever was a Christian nation. Or maybe it's not a Christian nation, but if we just tweak this or that law and get the right political candidate then well, then it'll be a Christian nation. We bought into the myth that America is some sort of city set on the hill and... It's the world's greatest hope. We bought into the myth that our ways are, are always righteous ways, and our causes are always righteous causes, and our wars are always just wars. We've placed so much trust in the flag and in our leaders and the military rather than God, just like everybody else in the empire does. Our trust and our confidence is just like the other nations. We trust in the flag. In the military rather than God. But God is calling us to be a peculiar people who step out. Who step out. Who are willing to defy the strong tanks of nationalism. The strong cultural currents that tell us to live life a certain way and see things a certain way. We're called to tear down the ashra poles of American idolatry. In a world that is bent over by nationalism, we're called to be a people who know what it is to walk straight up and to put on display a radically different way of doing life, and put on display a much more beautiful kind of kingdom. We're called to be a people who understand and walk in the truth that we are citizens of the kingdom of heaven before we're citizens of any country. And we're called to be like the heroes in Hebrews chapter 11, to consider ourselves foreign, foreigners, aliens, strangers, in whatever empire we happen to find ourselves in, because we're following a different king and our allegiance is to a different kingdom. And we're called, Paul says, to be, see ourselves as soldiers stationed in foreign territory, not becoming too preoccupied with civilian affairs, 2 Timothy 2.4, but rather are always seeking to please our commanding officer. We're called to step out from the herd and march to a different drummer and to be living in a way that reflects that, we, that our allegiance is to the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords who reigns over all the nations and gave His life for all the nations. So we're to be this one peculiar tribe that actually values people outside of our nation as much as we value people inside of our nation. Their lives count just as much. We're to be called to be a people who manifest a kingdom that isn't divided up according to the nations and all the hostility that goes with that, but rather our whole heart is set on the kingdom of God, a radically different kind of kingdom. To do that, we must stand up against the strong tanks of nationalistic idolatry in our culture. Folks, we're called to revolt. Jesus came to start a revolution, not a get-out-of-hell religion or a bless-me religion. It's a, rev- it's a revolution. It revolts. It doesn't conform to the ways of the world. It's high time we dump this boring, dumb, heretical uh, version of Christianity that says it's primarily about escaping hell and primarily about getting blessed. It's not that. It's a call to join a revolution, and it always looks like Jesus Christ. And if you've surrendered to the king, there's something inside of you. Even if your mind is saying, I don't like what he's saying, I get that. I, you know, I understand that. But there's something inside of you that's saying yes. Because if you were surrendered to the king, he put a spirit inside of you. And that spirit is not a little wimpy conformist spirit. That's the spirit of a lion inside of you. Uh, that's a tank defying spirit inside of you. That's an astropole tearing down spirit inside of you. And maybe the reason you've been so bored with the faith and, and you've been so restless and stagnant with the faith is because you've been quenching that roaring lion. But he wants to get out now and start to roar. He wants to roar and cause you to stand in front of those tanks and say, not here, not now, not on this watch. I will live a life that is different than the herd, that is different than the culture. To so stand up against the tanks. And we don't do it out of any kind of aggression or hostility or redneckism or anything of the sort. We don't, certainly don't do it out of any sense of moral superiority because we're not. We do it out of humble fidelity to our Savior and we do it manifesting love at every turn. But that's what it is to stand up against the strong tanks of the culture and to not heed the asherah poles of the culture and to manifest a very, very different-looking kind of kingdom. One more thing I want to say about that is, about this is this. If you get serious with this... And I submit to you that this is simply what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so, if you're serious about following Jesus, folks, you can't do it alone. You may think you can, but I'm here to tell you, please believe me, you can't. You can't. One of the reasons why it's so hard to break out of the herd is because we are, there's a part of us which by nature, are, we're copycats. We learn by imitation. And so we naturally copy other people. We're natural conformists. We blend in. It's hard to go against the norm of the, the broader community. It's very hard to step, step out of the mainstream. It's hard to even notice that the stuff in the mainstream you're supposed to be stepping out of because we're wired, in one sense, to be communal, to reflect God's nature by being involved in community. If you are really going to step out and live differently, you're going to have, have to have a different community, to reinforce your convictions, to hold you constant, uh, to support you in this. We all need little platoons of anti-empire revolutionaries who we can dream anti-empire dreams with. And ask the question, what would it look like for us, us 10 people, what would it look like for us to revolt Uh, Better against the the, the tank of racism and to defy the tank of consumerism. Uh, How can we adjust our lives to do that? How can we adjust our lives to defy better the tank of individualism and defy better the tank of nationalism? And so for all the other idols that are there in our culture, we need people we can dream, dream with and get ideas with and plan subversive activities with. You can't do it. Small groups is exactly what I'm talking about. We all need to be surrounded with people. Even this guy at Tiananmen Square, he came out of a community of revolutionaries and was given strength for that reason. Our vision of Wilder Hills Church is, is really this. And we haven't been particularly good at it. Uh, I, I'm hoping we're getting better. We're, we're very intentional on this. This is the front burner here. But it's, it's really to see ourselves as an association of of revolutionary anti-empire house churches uh, they're maybe kind of divided up into regions, but they meet in their, their houses and they, they, they talk the kingdom and they engage in the kingdom and they stand up against the tanks. And we still have the weekend service where we teach and worship together, but the life is lived outside of that in these, these platoons. We all need that. Can't do it without that. To be a nonconformist, to swim upstream, to tear down astral poles, to defy the tanks, you can't do it alone. So I, I end with this question Holy Spirit. Right now, whether people are listening in this in this auditorium or, or on television or through podcasting, God help us to be very honest with ourselves. And Holy Spirit, wake us up to this. Uh, the question I want to leave us with is just this, and only apply this to yourself. Okay, don't be applying it to your spouse or, or, or to your friends. Apply it to you. How is my life different because I've joined? the revolution. How is my life different because I've pledged to follow Jesus? Put it like this. If I wasn't a Christian, how would my life be different? See, is right, and he is. Most people have to answer that question honestly. Well, not much. I believe something different, but otherwise, I'm kind of just doing the American thing. And we don't raise that question to indict anybody or to shame anybody or to condemn anybody because there's no place for that in the kingdom. We ask that question just to be accurate and to be honest. It always starts by being honest before God. So Holy Spirit revealed to us the answer to that question. And, and then the question is this. Are, are you willing to start surrendering to the roaring lion inside of you? To move in the direction of the revolution? Maybe right now you're not quite willing to stand up to the tank, but... Are you willing to surrender that spirit that will eventually lead you to stand up to the tanks? And will you just surrender to that? Just make a commitment. You don't have to even know what that's going to look like. Maybe right now you're, you're, you're not even quite getting it. I, I don't get this. Why is consumerism so bad? I thought that was good. I, why, why is individualism so bad? I thought that was good. Yeah, okay, but, but in your heart, is there something that's saying, no, no, you've you got to revolt? And if there is, yield to that. That is the roaring lion inside of you saying you're called to live a revolution. And then with that comes this question. Who do you have in your life? What people do you have in your life who are helping you do this? To wake up to what we're supposed to revolt against and then have the courage to revolt against it. Do you have people in your life that you can talk anti-empire talk with? who have the right to speak into your life and and to question you, saying, you know, did you really pray before you did that or bought that or or moved there? You know, are you reflecting the values of the kingdom here? Not because we're going to be a little legalistic judges of one another, but because we love one another. And we're trying to help each other live this revolution. Do you have people like that in your life? And there don't have to be people who right now are radical revolutionaries, but are there people who are willing to become radical revolutionaries? And now you can join with them in exploring this entering on this journey. And if there's not, I want to implore you to seriously pray about that. And maybe at the end of this service, you stop by the community area and say, i got to get in a small group. Or maybe the Lord will lead you some other way of getting some ties with people, but we can't do it alone. Lord, let your revolutionary spirit right now be stirred up in each one of us. Open our eyes, God, to see the astral poles are not crosses. We need to tear them down. And we're not supposed to be driving the tanks. We're supposed to be standing up against them. Lord, open our eyes to the various ways we've sold out to the empire and bought the norms and the values and have just coasted down the stream rather than swimming upstream. Lord, open our eyes and raise up that strong spirit inside of us that is willing to boldly confront the tanks and live a different kind of life and willing to follow the ways of Jesus and live like the early church, even when it costs us a great deal. Willing to live in simplicity and bucking consumerism and willing to live in community and bucking individualism and willing to be inconvenienced in building bridges with people of other cultures, bucking the tank of racism and so on and so on. Lord God, call us to be revolutionaries, not because we want to become self-righteous or morally superior, because we confess that we're not, but in order to put on display the radically different, beautiful, outrageously sacrificial kingdom of God that always looks like Jesus Christ, who is anything but a conformist. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. amen. Go out and build a revolution. I like to call the uh, prayer team forward. If you want to get prayer for any matter whatsoever, come on forward. If you want to join the revolution this morning, come on forward. Talk to these folks. They'd be willing to help you in that. Go out and build a revolution.